Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following program contains adult content Explicit language and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go down and go to hell. I'm not alone. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. The pretty one looks. Talks in the road. Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams. He's still coming down with this and just pulled it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would who who whose life would be. I harm someone each time. I- Kill someone to be an enormous amount, uh, especially at first, an uh, enormous amount of, of, of horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again to come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What will you be covering this week, Barney? Well, Tara, in early March 2006, mother of three, Shelley Stevenson vanished. Suspicion fell upon her ex-partner, Thomas Halliday, who had a history of brutal and stalkerish behaviour. What followed was an amazing police investigation and court case that yielded some unusual results. Ooh, unusual results are the most interesting kinds of results. They really are. Yeah, huh? What have you got for us on our first episode of the year? Yeah, 2019. Today I'll be talking about the murder of Ronnie Reiter. Ronnie was the long-term girlfriend of ex-football player Sean Gale, who was seven months pregnant with his baby. Now, did Sean kill Ronnie because he didn't want to be tied down with a family? Or did someone else have a reason for wanting Ronnie and her unborn child dead? There's a lot of questions there. I hope you have answers. I've got answers to everything. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. We have a new one this week, Tara, and thank you to Gemma Ferris. She's from Scotland. Ah, thank you, Gemma. If you'd like to become a patron, you can go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. All right, Barney, uh, just to mix it up a bit, you're going to go first. So let's get murdery. On March 2nd, 2006, mother of three, Shelley Joy Stevenson disappeared. Shelley, aged 33, was last seen in the company of a man in Meribyn West, a small town about 16 kilometres west of Mildura and 550 kilometres northwest of Melbourne. The last confirmed sighting of Shelley was when her children said goodbye to her before they went off to school that morning. Police say the man seen with Shelley may have been driving her back to Mildura when she became agitated and possibly got out of the vehicle on 13th Avenue. 
Shelley was reported missing by her ex-partner Thomas Halliday on March 7th, five days after the last reported sighting of her. They had previously lived together for just over three years, but in December 2005 their relationship had come to an end. Detective Sergeant Van Vindahl told media about Shelley's three children, two girls aged 11 and 9 and a boy aged 8. The children are now living with their grandparents and they are very upset, he said. The children are very puzzled and confused. They don't know what to think. They are just very concerned that their mothers left them. One of the younger ones, the younger girl, cries about it a lot. Shelley was described as being 179 centimetres tall with brown hair, blue eyes and a fair complexion. Her right arm had been amputated below the elbow. Oh, do you know what happened to her arm? No, it's no information on that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Three weeks later, police began searching the Murray River near Mildura for Shelley after someone told Crime Stoppers she'd been murdered and her body was dumped in the river. Police used sonar equipment mounted on a boat to search a 30-kilometre stretch of the Murray River near the boat ramp in Meribyn. Underwater cameras and divers were also used. Detective Van Viedendahl, I love that name. Oh, that's cool. Said Shelley likely knew the man she was last seen with. She had not contacted her family or friends, taken money out of her bank account or used her mobile phone since then. Ah, uh, that's never a good sign. No, it's not, is it? So they searched a 30-kilometre stretch. Because it's a really long river as well. Like, it goes through different states. Yeah, it's the second longest river in Australia. Oh, and that's why I love it. But, I mean, in terms of oh. finding a body in there, like, maybe it wasn't in that part of the river. Quite wide, quite deep. A lot of snags underneath. Yeah. A lot of holes. Yeah. Mm. It's a tough one to be looking for, for something in there. On June 28th, the former de facto of Shelley told media that the police considered him a suspect in Shelley's disappearance. Thomas Halliday, 45, said he was the last known person to see Shelley alive, but he did not kill her. I didn't have any reason to hurt her, he said. Everyone is pointing the finger at me. I have nothing to gain. What reason would I have? Halliday said his partner of three and a half years had become upset after reading legal documents at his home on March 2nd. He said she abruptly got out of his tray truck, leaving her keys behind. Halliday said that when he went to pick up Shelley's two daughters from school that afternoon, his former partner did not arrive as normal. When detectives interviewed Halliday about Shelley's disappearance, he claimed it was a regular occurrence. She's taken off other times like this after a disagreement, he said. Halliday said that he and Shelley had never officially split, although she had moved out of his house to live in Mildura with her children. Oh, well, that sounds like officially splitting to me. It really does, doesn't it? He said he and Shelley would abuse each other verbally, but he did not physically harm her. After one argument, he claimed she had gone missing for three days. We never got physical, he said. She yelled at me, I yelled at her, she'd walk off and I'd do something else. <laughs> I'll, I'll just do something else. When she started stressing out, that's, what, that's the sort of thing she'd do. Yeah, according to this guy. According to him. Halliday told police he went to her house every day for more than a month after she disappeared. What, to see if she was there? Yeah. He said Shelley moved out of his house on December 22nd the year before over a rift with his children, saying, She didn't get on very well with my kids. I just hope she is still alive and well, which I told the police. The police have told me she could be dead. I'm hoping they're wrong. I'd like her to just walk in the door like the last time. But that was three days she went missing last time, not three months. Yeah, it's a difference. Shelley's last will, dated February 7, named Halliday 
as sole beneficiary and custodian of her children. Ooh. That's, that's odd because it's after they broke up, right? Yeah. Oh. Halliday pleaded for anyone with information to come forward as police intensified their search for Shelley. Homicide Squad detectives stated, Our investigation has revealed that there were a number of different areas she has been seen on that day. We will continue to go on with it until we can get some sort of conclusion. They also confirmed a Meribyn man was of interest to police. She was a caring mother and she had just re-established herself in a home in Mildura with her family and was setting up a new life, they said. Everything was looking good for her and she was sorting out her problems and finally getting on top of things. The children are obviously struggling with their mum's disappearance. They just want to know where their mother is. We believe she's in the river. It's just a matter of finding her. Shelley's parents, John and Lynette, also pleaded for public help. We just hope that anyone who can help the police find out what happened to Shelley will come forward. Police later arrested Thomas Halliday and charged him with the murder of Shelley Stevenson. Acting Detective Sergeant Matthew Garbutt, that's a nice name, <laughs> told media Halliday was charged after police searched his property. Halliday admitted in a statement to police that he had taken Shelley to his Meribyn West house on March 2nd and that an argument had begun. Halliday then said he had blacked out and could not remember anything until he found himself in Mildura sometime later in a disorientated state. Oh, how convenient. This version of events is different to previous statements to police, family members and the media. Can't get his story straight, can he? No, not even with himself. Sergeant Garbutt also told media Halliday had made admissions in relation to some child sex offences. What? Hang on, is he a rock spider? Well, it will become clear. Oh. On December 16th, 2006, during a pre-trial hearing, the court heard Halliday killed his ex-partner because she was getting in the way of his pedophilic schemes. Halliday was alleged to have taken part in sex acts with multiple children in the area. The Supreme Court also heard police believed he put Shelley's body in an old water service, filled it with crushed rock and dumped it in the Murray River. Prosecutor Jeremy Rapke QC said Halliday had a dark motive to get rid of Shelley so he could continue his predatory conduct. Oh, God. The prosecutor also said the accused had mused about killing his partner and borrowed a trailer around the time she vanished. <laughs> None of this is looking good for Shelley. When he was questioned in the interview about his activities on the day Shelley went missing, his final position was not one of denial, but one in which he ascertained there was a period of time on that day which he can't account for his movements, the prosecutor said. The Crown would say this is just laughable. Halliday's defence lawyer claimed his client should be bailed because the case against him was weak. His home was being looted in his absence and he suffered chronic back pain. Oh, where? Where? He also told the court Shelley had been known to go walkabout and had sought psychiatric help in the past. Oh, victim blaming. Oh, also, Fucking she surrender monkey. some. She realised she was bloody well hanging out with a rock spider. Justice Kevin Bell denied Halliday bail and remanded him for trial. During proceedings against Halliday the following March, it was revealed that at the time of her disappearance, Shelley was in hiding from Halliday. She had fled his home with her two young daughters to live in Mildura. Her son had been living with her parents for the previous 12 months. It was her fourth attempt to leave Halliday. Yeah, um, I was um, 
listening to something, a podcast recently, and they said on average it, it's around seven attempts for women to escape from abusive relationships. Shelley's mother, Lynette, said Halliday controlled her daughter and the children through abuse and violence. Well, it's all starting to come out now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really is. Asked in his record of interview with police if he killed Shelley, Halliday simply replied, I can't say I did and I can't say I didn't. Oh, for God's sake. He may as well just get a tattoo on his forehead that says I did it. Yeah. Yeah, he's pretty much saying I did it, but come at me. Yeah, I think Prove he's kind of going like, oh, you know, it's just one of those things you don't remember, you know, when you... So many of the stories that we've covered, they, they're all like, I blacked out during the bit where I killed some... Like, as if. Yeah. Come on. Shelley's family were living in hope Halliday would end their torment and reveal where he hid Shelley's body. Tell the kids where their mother is, Lynette pleaded. Tell us where our youngest girl is. Tell us so we can give her the decent burial she deserves. Everyone deserves to be buried properly. Police had dragged the river for her body without success. The Stevenson family had also searched the banks of the Murray. The river's a big place, Shelley's father John remarked. I honestly believe they won't find her. He has to tell us, Lynette said. She's got a little girl who wants to find mum and go to the coffin shop and buy a coffin. She wants a heart-shaped headstone for her mum. She's picked one out. It's been too hard to bear, so we put a plaque on my parents' grave in Redcliffe and we go there on Shelley's birthday and we let balloons go. We do it for the kids. It makes them feel good. Lynette and John Stevenson, both 64, now care for Shelley's three children. John said his grandson had endured psychological torment and physical violence from Halliday. Lynette said her daughter knew Halliday for eight years before their relationship started. He was a volunteer bus driver for a support group, Homemakers, that Shelley had attended as a single mother. It's just not fair. She didn't deserve any of this, her mother said. All she needed was a good man. She was just used and abused. Halliday's son, Ian... Not a cat. Oh, no. Are you sure? No, he's a, he's a human. Uh, told the court on how a month before the disappearance, Halliday had talked of killing her and putting her in a disused cylinder and dropping it in the river. Ian said he had seen the cylinder and 12 buckets of gravel at his father's Meribyn West home on the morning of March 2nd. He'd also cut a hole in the side of it. Oh, God. Like a hatch. Yeah. Yeah. So that was on March 2nd. They yeah. were gone in the afternoon. Oh, yeah? Hmm. Six days later, he asked his father what had become of the cylinder. Halliday told him it had gone to the tip with the rest of the rubbish. Okay. What about the 12 buckets full of gravel? They were gone too. Right. You don't normally get gravel so that you can take it to the tip, do you? No, you wouldn't think so. No. You just wouldn't get the gravel in the first place. No, that's right. He said Halliday had told him Shelley had failed to collect her daughters from school and was missing. One witness testified that Halliday had told him that he hit Shelley with a jack handle and disposed of her body in a hot water cylinder in the Murray River. Now, I don't have that witness's name because they're scared of him. It was, it was um, yeah, witness protection stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah, everyone's okay. afraid of this guy. Well, I mean, he sounds absolutely abhorrent. Yeah, he does. Prosecutor Michelle Williams, SC, told Justice David Harper his conduct was w wicked and abhorrent. Oh, oh. <laughs> She concurs with you. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's just a fact at this point. You have an accord with Michelle Williams, SC. Well, I really enjoyed her work in Destiny's Child, and she's a fine actress. This woman, I mean, is there anything she can't do? I know. 
The organisation of the murder was obsessive and meticulous. It is one of the most evil motives this state has seen. So fuckface Halliday sat stony-faced in a dock and proceeded to spew out lie upon lie so often that perhaps even he was confused about the stories as he tried to feign his bullshit innocence. His accounts to police and to others of his last contact with Shelley were varied and contradictory. Ah, he put the dick in contradictory. He had made two statements to the police without mentioning in either that they had rowed on the morning of her disappearance. In addition, for reasons that were never adequately explained, Halliday did not report her disappearance immediately. Yeah, none of this sounds right, does it? No. There was nothing to suggest that she might have wanted to harm herself or that she would willingly leave behind two daughters. Her mobile telephone, her prosthetic arm and a sum of cash belonging to her were located in Halliday's truck after her disappearance. Oh, okay. She's probably not going to go anywhere without her arm, is she? No. Or her phone. Or her money. Yeah. But, I mean, the arm in particular. Yeah. That's pretty, it's pretty damning, isn't it's it? It's entirely damning. There was evidence in the period leading up to Shelley going missing, Halliday took steps to enable him to gain custody of her two girls. He arranged to become a guardian if, by chance, their mother happened to die. Was she involved in that? Well, that's what they were rowing about, I'd, I'd say. Legal documents. Oh, I was wondering about those legal documents you were talking about. I think he might have forced her to sign them and then oh. killed her. Oh, so does that mean that he got custody of her daughters? He did for a while, <gasps> yes. No. After oh. she went missing. Oh, but no. when the sex stuff came out, the police took the kids away. Oh, God. Okay. In February 2006, just weeks before her disappearance, a solicitor acting on Halliday's behalf prepared a power of guardianship. Evidence was presented at the trial of Halliday's unnatural interest in the physical and sexual development of Shelley's two girls. Their school principal said that she had concerns at the time about his behaviour and that she had made them clear. She considered his interest in the girls to be obsessive. She described him as controlling. She noted in particular that he'd become extremely angry about what, in her view, had been an entirely appropriate friendship between an older girl and a boy at her school. In the principal's opinion, Halliday's attentiveness to this girl went well beyond that of a merely concerned adult. The principal said that in April 2006, only a month or so after the disappearance of Shelley and after the girls had been removed from Halliday's care, the school sought and obtained an intervention order to protect them from Halliday. Wow, that's quite unusual. Yeah, normally they don't poke around that kind of stuff. Yeah. Good work. Yeah. Good work, school principal. She described Halliday's general attitude towards her and others with responsibilities at the school as confronting. She said that he was often verbally aggressive, yet on the afternoon Shelley vanished, he had gone out of his way to approach her in a manner that she described as friendly. He told her on that day that Shelley had gone walkabout, but that she would be back soon. Just how he knew on the afternoon that Shelley had gone missing was never explained. Oh, that is incredibly suspicious. That's very telling, isn't it? Oh. So, Tara, the jury rejected every excuse Halliday offered and found him guilty of the murder of Shelley Joy Stevenson, even though her body has never been found. The court also heard that part of the police investigation into Shelley's disappearance, a listening device had been installed in Halliday's car, phone and house. The device to his home clearly recorded him sexually abusing Shelley's two daughters. Oh, what? So this is she after after she went missing. So do they monitor that in real time? Because how could you let that 
continue if you can hear well, that. Oh, no, they took the kids out of there right away. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, kind of too late, but I guess better than never, huh? Yeah, those poor girls. Dirtbag Halliday was also convicted of sexual offences against Shelley's two daughters as well as his own daughter. Oh, man. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with a non-parole period of 30 years. That's not enough. I mean, you know, it's not like he's told anyone where the body is. How does, how does he even get a non-parole period? Like, as it, Sorry, how does he even get a period in which he could be paroled? I would say that he will never get paroled. Yeah, but the family is going to have to jump through hoops about it in 30 years' time because he'll keep trying. Yeah. During sentencing, a list of his previous convictions were read to the court. Dating back to 1979, they included charges of theft and being found in premises without lawful excuse, breaching the terms and conditions of an intervention order. That was his last wife, which he had four or five kids with. Apparently oh. abused them as well. Well, yeah. Uh, unlawful assault, possessing a firearm whilst being a prohibited person, and shortening the barrel of a long firearm. So, you know, sawn off shotgun. Kind I do. Of thing. The cold hearted killer who has five children from a former marriage still refuses to reveal what he did with Shelley's body, despite pleas from her distressed children and parents. Since Shelley's death, I now experience anger, guilt, helplessness and extreme sadness, Shelley's father John said. I feel that somehow I've let my daughter down and I should have protected her. Well, as a parent, you would feel that, wouldn't you? Yeah. In her victim impact statement, Lynette Stevenson said her life had changed and that the emotional trauma had taken a heavy toll on her well-being. His crime has shattered our lives. I'm living a nightmare, she said. She described her daughter's killer as a monster who could now rot in hell. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Also, you know, rock spiders in prison. That'll probably go down a treat. Yeah, he'd probably be in solitary. He'd have to be separated. Tear down those walls, I say. Yeah. Here's an interesting thing to end it on, Tara. Mm-hmm. Uh, retired Homicide Squad detective Charlie Bazina says families of victims left hoping for a body are devastated. More often than not, the arrest, the conviction, that's secondary to the location of their loved ones. Bazina believes victims in that situation will be keen to see killers drugged to get to the truth. Yeah, I'm sure they would. I'm not sure how effective, like if they found a truth serum as such. I mean, if it was me, just give me a bottle of Chardonnay, I'd probably be banging on about it, but yeah. Yeah, I know that sort of crosses a line on all sorts of human rights issues, but... um. I'm not going to say no to that. <laughs> I'm not going to say no to that either. Yeah. Wow, there you have it. What wow. a story, hey? What a scumbag. What a scumbag. At least tell them where, where our Shelly is. I mean, come on. Yeah. Those poor kids. So many lives devastated. Yeah. All, all, all of those children. Yeah. There's eight children that are devastated. Um, parents, um, his ex. Yeah. Yeah, it's just awful. Absolutely. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
All right. Well, I believe it's time for you to get murdery, Tara. I see you've got Laszlo there. Uh, he's pretty much sitting right on your copy. Is he yeah. asleep? Uh, yeah, he's having a nap. He was chewing on my finger all the time that you were telling your story. All right. <laughs> I was all right with it. Well, hope he, hopefully you won't fuck shit up. Because no. there are lots of things to knock over. <laughs> um, he was trying to drink my water too, so I had to put my hand over it. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. He was chasing a fly around the other day for about an hour. It was awesome. <laughs> Knocking shit hour. over. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. He's a good little boy. His teeth are so sharp, they're like little needles. They are, but he doesn't bite too hard. He's, he just plays. Yeah. In October 2007, 41-year-old Ronnie Reiter was living alone in Chicago and working two jobs, one in the food industry and the other at Macy's, where she could indulge her love of fashion. You like fashion, don't you, Barney? Well, I love collots and uh, jorts. Oh, um, crocheted onesies. Crocheted onesies. Fashion's important. Yeah, very. <laughs> Beautiful fitness fanatic Ronnie had left her hometown of Potosi, Wisconsin, and moved 200 miles to Chicago, but she was still very close to her family and especially loved spending time with her nieces and nephews. Ronnie absolutely loved kids and was thrilled when she discovered several months earlier that she was pregnant with her first child, a girl that she planned to name Skylar. Skylar, it's a pretty name. I love kids too, but I can't finish one on my own. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, got to put half of it away for later. Yeah. Oh, cannibalism jokes. Ah, Aren't they great? There's no such thing as too many, is there? The father was Ronnie's boyfriend of 17 years, Sean Gale. Now, that name probably won't ring any bells for you, Barney. Got any bells on that? No. Who is he? Well, um, Sean Gale's really quite famous. He's a former American football player who played 11 seasons for the Chicago Bears and was a member of the Bears squad that won the Super Bowl in 1985. Ah, baseball. Yeah, football. Uh, And he's been heralded as like some kind of god ever since. That's how you herald people. With trumpets. Yeah, yeah, with trumpets and, well... Much fanfare. A lot of fanfare. Flags, maybe? Ah, just nudity. You'll see. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of nudity. Head jobs, too. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not kidding. After Sean's football career ended, he became a sports commentator and wrote a series of children's books called Sean Gale's Sports Tales. Now, they were stories with moral messages based on Christian values. But did Sean live up to the values that he wrote about? Did he? Well, it depends what the values were um, or, or if they've, like, amended the Bible to, in, to include that much poontang. Did I just say poontang? I, I believe you did. <laughs> what am I, Allie G now? <laughs> Jesus. I don't I believe think I've you ever said, said poontang in I my life. I don't believe I've heard you say the word poontang. Maybe it's a new thing for you. Oh, it's 2019. I say poontang oh, now. Oh, it's a year of poontang. <laughs> Jesus. Poontang. I'm going to lean into it. (laughs) Ronnie and Sean had met in the late 1980s in Platteville, Wisconsin, where Ronnie went to college and Sean practiced football at a Chicago Bears training camp. Although they'd been together for nearly two decades, they'd never lived together. Ronnie was keen to marry Sean, but he had other ideas. She assured her family that Sean was going to doctor's appointments with her and was keen to have the baby, but they really weren't sure how involved he wanted to be. Ronnie always invited Sean to family events and holiday celebrations, but he very rarely went, preferring to keep one foot in the single life. And Mm. boy, were his feet big. He's a pants man. 
Oh, yeah. He's a no pants man. He's searching for some uh, uh, poontang. Is that it? (laughs) (laughs) Roll up, roll up. Bring your poontang. Although Ronnie was Sean's official girlfriend that he took to Bear's functions, he had countless other women on the go. Now, it's not clear what Ronnie knew of Sean's wandering dick, but she had been getting letters accusing him of being a womanizer who was seeing over a dozen other women at the same time. God, that sounds like a full-time job, doesn't it? Seeing like a dozen women? Oh, God, I can barely keep one girlfriend happy. Well, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure that I mean, you do. You need a Blackberry or a calendar, a whiteboard. A whiteboard, yeah, um, Excel spreadsheet. Like, a imagine spreadsheet. trying to organise all of those sex appointments. It'd be exhausting. Yeah, you just do a generic text. Hey, baby. Yeah, <laughs> first in, first dicked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, baby. So essentially, um, yeah, he's, he's living the, uh, the life of sexy Barney. Right. Sean said the letters were full of lies and they were the work of someone who was out to harass him and make him look bad. Probably just a crazed fan. Oh, I bet sexy Barney gets a lot of letters like oh, that. Oh, crazed fan letters. Uh. <laughs> Actually, I seem to be the one that gets those. Yeah, normal Barney doesn't get anything <laughs> like that. Oh, no, there was that one. Oh, yeah, there was that one. Yeah, yeah. That, was, um, that was fan fiction. On the morning of October 4th, 2007, at approximately 7.50am, one of Ronnie's neighbours heard some screams, loud banging sounds and a crash. The neighbour called the police. Another neighbour saw someone he described as a thin African-American teenage boy, possibly wearing a wig, run across the parking lot and leave in a small black car. A nearby security camera recorded a black Volkswagen heading towards Ronnie's apartment at 7.04am and leaving the area at 7.55am. Clues. Clues. That's what police use to solve crimes. Clues. That's a clue. It is a clue. There's a couple of clues. Paramedics found Ronnie lying face down on her kitchen floor, dead. She'd been shot seven times. It was a case of overkill and appeared to be emotionally motivated. Neighbours did not report hearing any gunshots, which convinced the police that a silencer had been used. Deerfield hadn't seen a murder in more than 30 years, and now a pregnant woman was shot in her own home. Police noticed there was no forced entry or signs of robbery, so it seemed that killing Ronnie was their only goal. Awful. Yeah. Inside Ronnie's purse, the police found a typed, unsigned letter telling her that Sean was having sexual relationships with multiple women all over the world and that these relationships sometimes lasted for years. It also accused him of spreading diseases to these women. But the nastiest detail was that it said everyone knew Sean had persuaded her to get abortions in the past and he'd wanted her to do so this time as well. Yeah, gross. Yeah, come on. The letter listed the names and phone numbers of 16 other women Sean had been involved with and told Ronnie to contact these women so you can see for yourself. As is always the case, the police questioned the boyfriend first. Of course. At the time of the murder, Sean told police he'd been driving around 40 miles north of Chicago to get his hair cut at a barber shop that was favoured by all of the bears. Oh, a barber shop. A barber shop. His alibi checked out and there was no way that his tall, muscular, physical build could have been mistaken for that of the perpetrator seen fleeing the scene. Ah. As Ronnie led a low-risk lifestyle and had no enemies, they asked Sean who he thought might have killed her, and he gave them Monica Kurowska's name. Oh, that does sound like a a killer's name. Well, I mean, it's got some K's in it, like killer does. Yeah. 
Monica was a tanned, blonde, pretty fitness model and personal trainer who'd met Sean at a Chicago Bears event. She was the kind of Barbie girl you'd expect a guy like Sean to be banging. They'd dated for nine months, seeing each other a couple of times a week. Now, although they hadn't discussed dating exclusively, Monica said she believed they were exclusive until one night in May 2006, when she stopped by his place unannounced and saw him through the window with another woman. Oh, she did a drive-by, hey? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. She did a pop-in. A pop-in. Shouldn't just pop in. You might see no. something you don't want to see. That's right. Poontang. Extraneous poontang. (laughs) (laughs) Illicit poontang. In papers filed in court, Sean said that Monica had repeatedly banged on his window at the time, breaking it. Soon after that, the letters and emails started to arrive, which led Sean to assume that Monica was the one sending them. Sean took out an order of protection against her, but the letters and emails kept being sent to women he was seeing and events where he was due to make appearances. It seemed that Monica was violating the protection order, which resulted in her being threatened with deportation. Oh, where's she from? Poland. Oh. Monica had denied any involvement with the letters and emails or Ronnie's murder. Police checked her alibi and confirmed that she was training a client at the time of the shooting. After digging deeper into the email trail, they found that someone had been hacking into Sean's email remotely and wreaking havoc. This person turned out to be a woman named in the letters who had been dobbed in by three tipsters as well, who'd called the police after news of Ronnie's murder broke. Three tipsters? Yeah, three people went, I think maybe she had something to do with it. Tell me about this woman. Her name was Marnie Yang. She was a 40-year-old divorced mother of three who worked in real estate and as a fitness model. She was a tiny fit size two, but she had a face that looked like a foot. Really? (laughs) Like seriously, so much so that I bet famed foot fetishist Quentin Tarantino was like, yes, that's one hot foot-faced lady. (laughs) Uh, I want to see photos of her. You'll have to show me later. Oh, I'll show you. You'll be Uh. like, what? Why is there no shoe on that foot? Why does it have hair? (laughs) Marnie and Sean met at a Chicago Bears convention in 2005. Now, these conventions were essentially just a place where women who wanted to bang Sean could form a line to the left. Marnie and Sean's relationship started on professional terms as she helped him broker some real estate deals. However, soon their relationship became sexual because all Sean Gale has to do is walk past and all the women's legs open like automatic doors. There's a very nice legs. What time do they open? Mm-hmm. Anytime <laughs> Sean walks past. All right. Sean initially told the police it was a platonic relationship, but eventually admitted the truth. Like half the women of the world before her, he was having sex with Marnie. Now, Marnie knew they were not in an exclusive relationship and she continued to see other people as well. So it wasn't like with Monica where she she was kind of foiled. According to Marnie's friends and family, she harboured an unhealthy obsession with Sean. He was Marnie's claim to fame and she wanted more of it. Co-worker Maggie Zimmer said that Marnie talked about Sean on a daily basis and told her that she had hacked his email account. She also complained a lot about all the other women he was seeing. That would have taken a while. Friend Julie Fields stated that Marnie boasted that she had repeatedly accessed Sean's email account as well. Yeah, she was pretty much screaming it from the rooftops so at this Sean, point. So Sean's not into her though. Into what? Into, into Footface. 
Well, he was into her enough to bang her. But, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when you put a knife in the knife block? I feel like that's just what he did with his penis. Oh, I'll just put it away. Well, you don't look at the mantelpiece when you're stoking the fire. That's what they say sometimes. Do they? I mean, terrible men say that. I I would not say that. You've never even heard it before. You don't know what it means. I don't even have a fireplace. No, you don't. I've ducted heating. Oh, fart. <laughs> Marnie would do creepy things, like see from his email account that Sean had planned trips overseas with other women, and then she'd call the hotel that he planned to stay at and cancel his bookings. Because oh. that'd make the other women be like, oh, I don't want to be with him anymore. Oh, my booking isn't here. Okay, is there another room available? Yes, there is, Mr. Gale. Fine, I'll take that then. Yeah, that's like um, that's thirty seconds worth of conversation that shouldn't have, shouldn't have even happened. Yeah, like how I don't, hurtful! I don't, I don't, I just don't imagine that it was really yeah. that off-putting for him. He'd just be like, "Oh, well, that's a bit fucked." Alrighty then. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, criminal mastermind, Marnie, thinking with her feet, I guess. That's right. Marnie also bragged to friends that she'd written the emails and letters about Sean's wandering dick while posing as Monica, even imitating Monica's style of broken English. Under Monica's name, she sent emails to threaten the other women involved with Sean with the hope of getting him all to herself. So for over a year, Sean had been thinking that Monica was stalking him when actually the woman that he didn't suspect of anything, old footface herself, Marnie, was behind it all. Mm, diabolical. Yeah, yeah. She must have sort of played it pretty cool in front of him. And then mm. when, when he wasn't there, she was just scheming, plotting and obsessing. Well, I mean, if you look at a foot, you can't really know whether it's angry, sad. You or... can't really tell what a foot's thinking, no. You can't tell just by <laughs> looking at a foot. <laughs> it's pretty hard to read a foot, isn't it? It really is. When the police looked into her criminal record, they found that Marnie had been a bunny boiler since way back. Oh, she's got form. Oh, she's got form. She had several orders of protection taken out against her, including one by a married Chicago policeman that she'd had an affair with. The officer said that Marnie had sent a harassing letter to his wife, threatening his life, career and marriage, and that he feared for his safety and the safety of his family. Oh, my God. Like, Glenn Close is looking at that and going, Onya. Fatal attraction, baby. In the weeks after the murder, detectives learnt more about how Marnie had reacted when she didn't get what she wanted in a relationship. As a teen, Marnie went away to one college and her old boyfriend went to a different one. Uh, They broke up, he got a new girlfriend, and she was not happy about it. Oh, but what? he couldn't tell because... <laughs> she can't tell what a foot's thinking. Um, so what, what did the talking foot do? Well, she started stalking him. Um, she'd actually drive over to where he was away at school and just like randomly show up everywhere. She was also calling him repeatedly and sending him threatening letters. Man, she likes writing letters, doesn't she? Well, that's great. It's a lost art. Yeah, it's kind of a slow way to stalk someone. Yeah, though, it really is, isn't it? <laughs> Takes so long. I know. Eventually, Marnie met her future husband, which was a man named Yen Yang. So that's who she got her surname from. Um, She's actually Caucasian. At her hen's night, she and a stripper hit it off like you do. You know, you're getting teabagged and you're just like, hey, baby. (laughs) Really, she hit it off with a stripper on her hen's night? He invited her into the back room for free sex backstage. 
Well, you know, when you see a woman with three feet, you got to strike while the iron's hot. Well, you really do. That teabagging really got it roiled up. Yeah. Oh. Uh, she became obsessed with the stripper, and after she'd come back from her honeymoon, um, she tried to hook up with him again. But right. he, he was like, nah, just the one night. Thank you very much. Well, I'd like to have those stripper pants, you know. Time yeah. for bed, just pull them off. Yeah, That'd be great. super easy. Oh. So despite such auspicious beginnings, Marnie and Yen got divorced in 1997. Ah, uh, didn't work out, hey? No, it's strange, right? <laughs> strange, You know, hey? you're, banging, you're banging a stripper on your hen's night and your marriage doesn't last. Oh, I, just, I just don't even understand. In the summer of 2007, Sean told Marnie that he was going to be a father. This infuriated her and she said to him, I guess the condom rule doesn't apply to everybody then. So he had like a condom rule with her. Well, I would have triple bagged it with that talking Oh, man, I would have put all 12 on. Marnie's close friend of 20 years was a psychic named Christy Passion. Ah, uh, uh, here we go. Yeah, this is a Tara story now, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I knew, I knew a psychic would come up. Yeah, you know I, I look for them in all of yeah, these. Yeah. Um, so Christy had met Marnie when she went to her for a reading. Christy's great claim to fame was that in 1976, the army recruited her as a psychic. She told clients that she was the sole survivor of her final mission in the Middle East and afterwards the military erased some of her memories. Sounds legit, right? Oh, that sounds like a real load of bullshit. Well, nothing's going to end the war in the Middle East but a spectacular tarot reading, is it? (laughs) She later admitted that she fabricated her military experience to enhance her resume. And I'm thinking of doing the same because I'm still trying to get a job. Yeah, that's true. That might help. (laughs) I can't hurt at this point. (laughs) In the summer of 2007, Marnie told Christy that she was fucking furious that Sean continued to see other women and that she was thinking of killing him. She told Christy that Sean was incapable of being a parent and did not deserve a child. Realising that killing Sean would end her link to fame, Marnie started thinking about killing Ronnie instead, even though she was a woman that she'd never met who wasn't doing anything wrong. Psychic Christy encouraged Marnie to leave it alone, but Marnie couldn't leave it alone. No. Uh, Yeah, I guess she was just really worried that if he settled down and had a kid, he wouldn't want to bang her foot anymore. Marnie told Christy that she'd gone to Ronnie's apartment building with her 9mm gun to kill her, but had chickened out at the last minute. Christy again told Marnie to let this go, and told her that if she killed her, she'd be caught and her arrest would devastate her three children. Like, she's got kids, remember? This is crazy. On October 3rd, 2007, the night before the murder, Marnie went to Sean's house for two hours. So what she did was um, she somehow organised it and I guess she had to sweeten the deal because she was like, I'll bring dinner. She took him dinner and they had sex before he promptly showed her the door. Romance, people. See, it's not dead. Don't bang your foot-shaped head on the, way, on the door on the way out. <laughs> get your three feet and get the hell out of yeah, here. That's right. Thanks for dinner, love. Marnie then went and stayed at Christie's house. She asked Christy to read her tarot cards to determine whether she would be successful in murdering Ronnie. The card that Marnie drew was the sun. This card portends good fortune and harmony. It represents the universe coming together and agreeing with your path and aiding forward movement into something greater. So yeah, tarot is somewhat to blame here. Well, well, yeah. Marnie told Christy that if she killed Ronnie, she'd call Christy at work and deliver a coded message. The code would be that she would ask Christy to dinner. 
Christy did not take Marnie's plan seriously enough to call the police. When Christy woke up the next morning, Marnie was gone. In the weeks after Ronnie was shot to death, police did not have enough evidence for a warrant to search Marnie Yang's house, so they decided to search through her garbage. They found some things in there that were very telling. Lots of socks. I was going to say um, the old shoes, but there's three of them. Yeah. The bank statements that they found showed that Marnie had paid for dozens of online background checks for personal information regarding the other women with whom Sean was involved. Here she found out where they lived and worked and pretty much everything about them. Sneaky foot woman. Ah, stalkery. On her credit card bill, they saw that she'd bought some books on how to build a silencer with ingredients found at any hardware store. And detectives also uncovered a receipt from Home Depot. The items listed were what the book said was needed to make a silencer, such as a drill, screwdriver, electrical tape and a plastic pipe. You can just use a potato, can't you? You can try. Or you can shoot through a soda bottle. You see that in the movies. They just shoot through a soda bottle. I'm pretty sure it doesn't work. Finally, police obtained documentation that Marnie had rented a black Volkswagen the day before the murder. Now, this was the same model of car recorded leaving the scene of the crime. The rental company said that they'd picked Marnie up at Christie's apartment. Although Marnie paid for the car in cash, Marnie's driver's licence was recorded as security for the transaction. And additionally, the rental company required a credit card, which was also in her name. I've got to pay cash for this and no one will ever know it was me. Yeah, except for showing the licence and the credit card. Yeah, knucklehead. As if this wasn't damning enough, the distance travelled on the car was 40 miles. Now, this was the exact distance from the rental company back to Christie's house where Marnie spent the night to Ronnie's apartment and then back to the rental company again. Mm, very telling. Mm-hmm. On February 18th, 2009, 18 months after Ronnie's murder, the police obtained authority to put a tap on Marnie's phone. They then called in Christie for questioning where she agreed to cooperate with the investigation. Christy told police that at around 9am on the morning of the murder, Marnie called her at work using a number that she did not recognise as she'd bought herself a burner phone. Marnie asked, do you want to go to dinner? Which was the coded message Marnie had devised the night before. Now this phone call had been recorded as it was company policy to do so at Christy's work. So yeah, I actually heard the recording of that. Um, She says it um, and then Christy's like, oh, oh. And then Marnie goes, are you, are you okay? And Christy's like, oh, yeah. And you can tell that Christy was really shocked. Did she work at a psychic hotline or something? I imagine so. <laughs> Christy informed the police that Marnie had come to her apartment the evening of the murder and told her all about it. Marnie told Christy that she wore a disguise that included a dark wig and blackface. I mean, come on, <sighs> blackface. Sean Gale is black. I mean, I, I wonder what he thought of all of this. Uh, but, you know, uh, none right. of it's good, well, is it? Well, he's probably thinking... Racist. That's what I'm thinking. (laughs) That's certainly what I'm thinking. But I guess when you're murdering someone, I don't know, racism is the least of your problems, really. Yeah, yeah. Still not good. No, still not good. She also said that she'd taken a medical alert bracelet from Ronnie's wrist before leaving and that she planned to put the gun in a bucket of cement and bury it. Marnie then suggested that they go for a drive. Ooh. The two drove around Arlington Heights to throw away items used in the murder in several different dumpsters. Christy saw Marnie throw out packaging for gun grips, a black wig and clothes. Christy also saw her bury a small object in the ground outside of a banquet hall. Based on Christy's information, the police went to the banquet hall where Marnie buried the object. 
After digging around, they found a pearl medical alert bracelet that said pregnant. Yeah. Witnesses identified the bracelet as belonging to Ronnie. Why would she even take that? Because she's so damn jealous of the fact that she's pregnant to Sean Gale and he didn't have a condom rule with her is what oh, I'm thinking. okay. Yeah, that Yeah, makes sense. there's a condom rule for me, but this woman, there isn't. Granted, Ronnie had been with him for 17 damn years. Yeah. So, you know, Jesus. But, I mean, that's that speaks volumes, I reckon. I think it does. Yeah. Uh, also, because I'm going to go into where she was shot later, that speaks volumes too. At the police's urging, Christy agreed to wear a wire and organise a meeting with Marnie. Sean Gale had also done this, but Marnie didn't let anything slip to him, so it wasn't very helpful. And he probably banged her. Christy met Marnie at a Denny's restaurant. Undercover operations like this often go down at a Denny's. I recently saw an interview with an undercover cop who said they were the restaurant of choice because they had tables along big windows which allowed backup to watch the interaction from the parking lot, Hmm. which they did in this case as well. Makes sense. Investigators listening into the conversation heard Marnie describe them as stupid suburban morons, which they loved. You're going down, talking foot. Oh, yeah, she is now. (laughs) At the restaurant, Christie's body wire recorded the whole conversation. Marnie stated that while the police were still running in circles looking for a teenager, she'd encased the gun in a bucket of cement, threw the bucket in a Chicago dumpster, and was confident that the bucket was now buried under a year and a half's worth of garbage. The next day, Marnie met Christy at Denny's again. This time, Marnie described the murder in detail. Whoa. She said, She opened up the door to the apartment. I was in. I had a wig on. I had dark glasses this big covering my face. I had a hoodie on. I had dark makeup on my face and I had gloves on. When she opened up the door, that's when I brought out the gun. And when she saw it, she started screaming and I just let her have it. I remember screaming because at that point I realised we are now at the point of no return and I just started emptying the clip. She went backwards into the kitchen, fell against the counter. All she was doing was screaming until she went down and then when she was down she took her foot and she took one good kick at me, got me in the shin and that was it. I just I took one last shot in the head, finished her off and I took off. Her leg was sticking out into the hallway. I had to kick it inside. Then I slammed the door, took off. That was it. Oh, so cold. So Ronnie sustained a single bullet wound to the back of the head, um, which was the immediate cause of her death. So that was the last bullet that Footface fired. Two bullets hit Ronnie's abdomen, killing her unborn daughter. Ronnie also had two bullet wounds in her arms, which occurred when she unsuccessfully tried to shield her baby from the gunfire. So that's what Marnie shot at first. Is she the- shot her in the baby four times, or at least tried to. Two got the baby and two got done in the arm. So there's seven shots. Only three oh. of them were actually outside of the baby area. Yeah, that's terrifying. And it's clearly her motive here. Mm. There were spent 9 millimeter casings as well as five unfired rounds surrounding Ronnie's body. When the police searched Marnie's house, they found materials consistent with the manufacture of a disposable silencer. When questioned about the books she'd bought on how to make a silencer, Marnie said she'd bought those for a science project for one of her kids at school. But it was summer holidays and her kids didn't have any science projects to do. She later changed her story and said that she actually bought those as a gift for a friend. 
Oh, Grandmama. She likes yeah, to know how to make she silences. She loves those. She thinks gunshots are too loud. Yeah, my kids are on summer holidays <laughs> at the moment. And they, they don't do silences until their first semester. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's why you haven't started with those that's yet. That's right. Why would I? So Marnie said that she'd been at home on the morning of the murder, but her oldest son did not back his mum's alibi. He also told investigators that he thought she would she was probably involved. Oh yeah, mum, she totally did it. Oh yeah, my mum totally right. killed her. Mum's gross. Yeah. Following a jury trial, Marnie Yang was convicted of two counts of premeditated first degree murder for the deaths of Ronnie Ryder and her unborn child. The trial court imposed concurrent natural life sentences. What the hell, huh? Yeah, Poor that's, Ronnie. That's crazy. Yeah. Keep it in your pants because you never know when you might be banging a crazy person who's going to kill the woman that you actually probably did care about. Yeah, a bit uh, Sean Gale's doing a bit less poontang these days. Yeah, who knows? I mean, obviously it was upsetting for him, very upsetting for Ronnie's family. Mm. They had to go and pack up her apartment and, you know, there were all these baby clothes that everyone had given her. Oh. It was all just incredibly heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. Now, before we commence... Aussie as, which I don't even know what it is. No, yeah, no, you wouldn't. We like to do a little bit of listener feedback. Would you like to start us off on that one, Tara? Alyssa Campbell posted, God is up in heaven creating dogs. God says, you're man's best friend. And the dog says, oh, that's pretty sexist. And so God says, no, man as in everyone. Oh, fuck it. You can't talk. And also, chocolate kills you. And you can't wipe your ass properly. No, not my dog anyway. <laughs> Dogs could never wipe their ass properly. No, well, they, they, they don't want to. They want to leave some of that sweet, sweet yeah. smell for the next dog yeah, to know what's going they on. They want to put little chocolate starfish prints all over your, your duvet cover, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yes, she does. Michael Lucy shed some words of wisdom to ring in the new year. Sometimes the first step to forgiveness is understanding that the other person is an idiot. It's an important first step sometimes. Yeah, it really is. Jeanette Marie Price posted, Some people will only love you if you fit inside their box. Don't be afraid to shove that box up their ass. <laughs> uh, true that. Edward Horgan, Horgan, <laughs> said for anyone in the mood for some poetry, he's got a nice little quote here from Hunter S. Thompson. Walk tall, kick ass, learn to speak Arabic, love music, and never forget that you come from a long line of truth seekers, lovers, and warriors. That's true. I like that. Yeah, it's nice. All right. What is Aussie as? Really? What, what well, is just, it? You're going to keep going with the you don't, don't know what it is I thing? I really don't remember. Oh, my God. Aussie as are tales of criminal stupidity or heroicism sometimes with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? I would. Video footage has captured the moment an Aussie battler went toe-to-toe -to -toe with a large roux at his property near Bendigo. Daniel Tui, probably nicknamed Tuo, has been left with deep cuts and bruises after he was kicked to the ground by the large angry Roo, but at least he managed to avoid spilling his beer in the process. Champion. Legend. The attack was captured in a video taken by Tuo's daughter Bree, who said that although they're laughing about it now, the incident left her very shaken. She said, I was just hoping that it didn't go any further than it did. I was a bit shocked. It was very scary. I'm not sure what I would have done if it had kept going. Tuo was just hanging out by his dam, wearing shorts and a singlet and thongs or flip-flops. And he was drinking a stubby of beer when he noticed a kangaroo attacking and he rushed to save his two dogs from the aggressive roo. 
Chiwo told the media, oh, there's a fair chance that the dogs were going to get drowned because a kangaroo will grab dogs in the dam and, and pull them in and drown them. That's what I was worried about. That was my main concern. He ran to the aid of the dog, still holding his stubby, but the kangaroo turned on him, scratching and kicking him before forcing him to the ground. Vet Kelly Ansett said kangaroos can cause damage as a result of their long and sharp claws, saying, we frequently see dogs in here that have been damaged by kangaroos. They can actually kill them too because those claws are savage. I've been attacked by a kangaroo. Well, that would be funny to watch. If it happened to you, <laughs> what did it do? It was just scratching me and shit because uh, I had some bread and it wanted it. Give me. It wanted the bread. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Um, I got in trouble once because some woman was talking about how a kangaroo knocked a child over. A... This is when I was like in my late teens and I laughed and she got so mad at me. <laughs> no sense of humor. Yeah, look, I was even worse than I am now then. The video has been shared thousands of times online with comments flooding in from all over the world, praising this Aussie hero for being a bloody legend. Many social media users were impressed that he managed to fight off a raging roo without dropping his stubby. Hold my beer? I don't need you to. I got this. Mm. That's what Tuo was thinking to himself. He didn't need you to hold his beer. Oh, well, I wouldn't. Even, He's got it. Even if he wanted me to, I wouldn't have. Why not? I don't know. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. You know, good. we haven't we haven't had a kangaroo attack since episode one, I don't think. So this brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took time to write us some good reviews. So thank you very much, Patricia Ash. Oh, we've got someone here from Japan, actually. Oh, ah, yeah. Um, let me see if I can get this pronunciation right. Uh-oh. Sarah 05. Sarah 08. So no, oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Sarah 008. And also Derek Gourlay. Thank you very much for that. Cheers. So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink because we're really thirsty, there's a PayPal donut button there too. Uh, we actually did have a, a few of these. Some people, some lovely people bought us some drinks. So thank you, Mechanical Bionic, Lauren Stefanik, and also Kelly Jordan. Well, thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you very much. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes or our Facebook page. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Um, feel free to follow us on Twitter, our Facebook group, Facebook page, Snapchat, Instagram, all the things. Yep. Check out our website, Bloody Murder Podcast, for news, galleries, more episodes, and some sweet, sweet ass merchandise. Including in- leggings. Including leggings. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Keep kicking against the poontang. <laughs> keep poontanging against the pricks. No, that doesn't work. Poontang against the pricks. What's wrong with you? Well, I don't know. I guess it does work, depending on what you're going for. Oh, and of course, Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. 2019. Who would have thunk? Exactly. Oh, and it's my birthday. Oh, yeah. Not that anyone remembered because I don't tell anyone. (laughs) Happy birthday, Tara. Thank you. Such a sprightly little 22-year-old you are, aren't you? No, I actually ate a sprightly little 22-year-old for breakfast. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it gave me the energy I need to really get on with my day. Yeah, that's right. that it wasn't on and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997.
22. Oh, I can hardly remember that from here. <laughs> I think that's when they, that kangaroo attacked me. <laughs> and I had a loaf of bread and they said, look, I didn't see any signs that said don't feed the kangaroos. And then this ranger came over and said, can't you see the signs? And I went, where? And he showed me this tiny little one that said don't feed the kangaroos. Oh. And I had a loaf of bread because everyone was doing it. And then when the kangaroo attacked me, I just I just threw the loaf of bread at the, can- and at the kangaroo and ran run? away. And ran away. <laughs> But there was a grey kangaroo. That, yeah, they can get pretty big, but those red kangaroos. Oh, oh my God. And so muscly. Muscly. It's like they're on Muscle Beach. Yeah. Far away in time. That's right. Yeah, it's like they're out the back in the exercise yard at the prison just rah, pumping yeah, on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, they will go you, son. That's right. They'll shiv you in the shower and then have a sandwich. Yeah, they'll sh- they've got so- they could shiv like several people at once too with those claws. Oh, scary. Better from afar. And let's not get started on drop bears. Well, no, let's not get started on drop bears. You shouldn't feed them at all. No. Or maybe if you know someone who's from a different country who's here and they've overstayed their welcome, yeah, take you, them for a bush you walk. You push the cranky tourists towards them. <laughs> <laughs> and then scamper. And then scamper. Just yeah. like Barney did with his bread. Well, that's right. I'm not taking on a kangaroo. No, no, no. You would lose. Uh, that's so going in now. <laughs> oh, fuck you. Fuck you. Oh, fuck you. All right, well, the cat slept through most of it, yeah, which is good. Do. Hopefully that's not like a reflection on how the episode is. Oh. <laughs> so boring that it makes you go the fuck to sleep. All right, we're recording. All right, so how are my levels? Have you even looked at those? Or yeah, you just I'm, check your levels and then you just I'm like, looking oh, at them. I'm, good. I'm looking at them now. Yeah? Oh. Are they amazing? Oh, they're pretty good. Yeah? Are they, are they fucked? No, they're good. Well, I haven't touched the dial since, so unless you're, you've got a completely different voice cadence, it's... I might. An, new year, new voice. Hmm. New year, new voice. Yeah. Oh, and, and um, of course, the New Year's resolution. No more swearing. <laughs> oh, fuck that. <laughs> no, I've decided it's about time. I've become more, uh, become more ladylike. I'm going to take up crocheting and I'm going to drink tea out of little teacups. And I'm only going to say cunt five times an hour. Well, that's a drastic reduction. Yeah, that's, don't that's you a, think? That's like only 10% of the cunts. Yeah, I know. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's something. It's that's, not nothing. It's not, it's not nothing. It's not nothing. Ah, oh, so how about having to like change our recording schedule around the fact that it's hot as fuck some days? Yeah. Though we have an answer to that now. Brandy said we can use her house. <gasps> oh, That's cool. got air conditioning. Really? Why uh-huh. does she come here then? <laughs> Good ideas, one and all. Yeah, cheese eating surrender monkeys they are, those French <laughs> bastards. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I love that every time you say something like that, I'm pretty much sure that I'm the one who's going to get in yeah. trouble for come at, it. Come at me, Frenchies. Yeah, come at me, Frenchies. Actually, I did say that. <laughs> oh, we, we got one more review that we should put in. Um, yeah, was it nice or was it mean? It was from Japan. What? I know. Um, no, I'm not taking the bus, damn you. Actually, I did take some buses. <laughs> Wasn't good. No? No. Uh, oh, maybe I can, tell, I can tell the story about that guy who, um, who uh, thanked me for letting him sit next to me and told me it was great because I didn't smell. That was a, it was a good sort of, you know, compliment to end the year. Well, it's a nice compliment and I like that it's not true. <laughs> it was true compared to him. Uh, well, you know, he was guzzling vodka uh, and then he tried to give me some of his aftershave and it smelled like cheap gin. That's the thing about public transport. There's so many people that just don't use deodorant. Yeah, I guess so. Come on. Especially when it's hot, man. Just, you know, get a roll on. (laughs) 
Just get a roll on. Just get a roll on. Have it solved. Put it in your bag. Have a sniff. If it's bad, just give it a bit of a roll on. Just, just chuck it on before you, you put your shirt on. Well, that's right. Do yeah. it in the morning. Make it your routine. <laughs> Do some deodorant, especially in summer. You know what I love about this is that Barney clearly works with someone stinky and he works alone from home. <laughs> so basically, you're just trying to tell yourself well, to use some roll-on, no, aren't you? I do get public transport sometimes, but really, um, when? Uh, it's been a while. Yeah, it has. It's been a while. I got a nice three-hour bus ride the other day. Yeah, that was oh, that was thrilling. Did they have a movie? No, thank God, because the last time that happened, it was Patch Adams, and I already hated that movie, and then I had to sit through it again. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. Do they have a toilet on the bus? Yeah, they did. Um, and that's the toilet them? that, no. What you do is you you um you drink a lot of water a few hours beforehand and then you just stop drinking any fluids because you don't want to go in there. Uh, it's like the toilet from train spotting or yeah, something. Yeah, it's like the toilet from train spotting, but smaller. So you can't actually avoid touching all the gross things. And oh. Mr. Bloody, I'm drinking vodka from a lemonade bottle who sat next to me. Uh, he was going to the toilet like constantly. And I don't think he was aiming very well. Uh. Nah. <laughs> He's just really excited that uh, that it was uh, New Year's, mate. And he had like all tribal tattoos on his arm and he was going to go party on St Kilda Beach. Oh, no. Oh, he invited me along. I was like, oh, oh yeah. You, you didn't want to get glassed on the foreshore? Oh, getting glassed on the foreshore is a lovely way to ring in the new year. But I thought maybe this year I'll do something different, like not get glassed on the not, foreshore. Not leave the house. Yeah. Yeah, didn't leave the house. <laughs> it was amazing. Actually, we went for a couple of pints at about five. Oh, yeah. How was that? That was good. That's when the $6 pints happened. Oh. Oh, and then there was this crazy, crazy man um, who was really drunk and really large and in his mid-50s. And uh, he was really trying to win the dog over and he was drinking two rum and cokes at once. And And he kept kneeling down near the dog and then he couldn't really get back up again and he kept... Yeah, it was interesting. He uh, he was drunk in Spain for an entire week and woke up in some strange woman's apartment and is surprised that he didn't get killed. And he was drunk at 5pm. Oh, yeah. He might have started his uh, New Year's celebrations a tad early. Yeah, quite early. There were a few people drunk at 5pm. Yeah. Well, you know. Yeah. Whatever gets you through the night. Well, you know, New Year's Eve, mate. Mm. That's how we roll. <laughs> I'm thirsty. That's why I drink water. I'm going to get a lemonade. Actually, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a glass of water. Oh, my God. What the hell? Who are you? Yeah, this is really not going anywhere, this bit, is it? Let's do it more. (laughs) One and a half arms. Better than the Def Leppard guy. Uh, Just when you thought we weren't getting anywhere, you took us all the way to Wrongtown. (laughs) Although, granted, I I did um, did see the sign and sort of turned the corner in there. You kind of went, go that way, Barney. Yeah, I went, let's go to Wrongtown, Barney. Yeah, I I asked you for directions. And uh, (laughs) I went, oh, Wrongtown, that's where you want to be. Yeah, that's where you want to be. Yeah, let me help you along there. Shelley's last will, dated February 7, named Halliday as executioner. (laughs) Oh, Well, that's very telling, isn't it? <laughs> Barney, will you be the executioner of my will, please? Is he just going to sit there? Yeah, and bite me. He's right. just going to sit here and bite oh, me. Oh, Laszlo, you're lesbian. He's beautiful. He is. So when he sneezes in your face when you're asleep. Oh, man, I put on that eagle mask. It's a full face mask. I put it on today and then the dog was fascinated and she somehow managed to sneeze into the mouth hole of the mask and it splattered all over my face. Wow. So even with a mask on, I was not protected. <laughs> Having pets is great, isn't it? <laughs> it's good for getting like different species of snot on your face. Yeah. 
Police had dragged the river for... There. <laughs> wow, you look attractive when you do that. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. <laughs> I was being facetious. Oh. I look more attractive when I do that. That's what you're trying to say. Yeah, sure. Why not? Oh. She described Halliday's general attitude. <clears throat> what happened then? Um, your voice broke. Oh, finally. <laughs> it's puberty. You're going to get hair in strange places. Uh, or I... maybe in your case, you're going to lose it in strange places. Can, can I get some hair on my head, please? <laughs> Just use your nutsack uh, hair. What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming. I mean, you're a rather astute man. I'm assuming there's quite the carpet going on down there. At least it, it is in the fan fiction I write about you. <laughs> really? Yeah, I write a fan fiction about true crime podcast hosts, including Barney and myself. Well, wow, wow. I'd love to read that. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's very mm. sexual. <laughs> I mean, it involves other people too, like, you know, Tyler and Beck and, well, Christy Lee, of course. Cambo. Cambo. Yeah, oh, yeah. Broad, you know, Bonnie. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much everyone. Oh, wow. Oh, Mr. Uh, Case File. Hello. Oh, a bit of sexy sex, sex story podcasting. Oh, they walk among fiction. us. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> trace. Oh, I'll leave you yeah. a trace. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Martini's uh, in the very macabre, I'll, I've got to say. I'll fill up your evidence locker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, point blank, it will be point blank and you will like it. <laughs> um, criminal, only in some countries. <laughs> minds of madness, more like the minds of sexiness. <laughs> what else is there? <laughs> I can't think of what to do with Court Junkie. They're all dead and buried. Dead and buried. <laughs> <laughs> um, Your inhibitions, well, they'll be dead and buried. Oh, they will indeed. <laughs> oh, can't make a joke about voice of the victim. That just seems wrong to do. Yeah. Um, who else we got? Oh, the oh Obscura. They're <laughs> very obscure. <laughs> all kinds of things. By the way, it's mostly just about me and seven guys named Justin. 17 guys named Justin. Well, the cleaning of John Doe. Well, I'll have to have four showers <laughs> after this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was fun. <laughs> There's plenty of kids these days that have two mums or two dads, and that's great. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I'd, I never would have seen that. But, you know, these days, it's good. I think it was probably around when I was a kid. Yeah. I just had one parent. It would just be, it'd be good to have two. Yeah. So I hear. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think um, one good parent as opposed to two half-assed shitty ones. That's yeah, probably better. Yeah, that's true. Oh. <laughs> You're not lying. Your personalised care of subscription box gets sent right to your door. Your door, yeah. Door, door, Someone's knocking on the door, yeah. Somebody's ringing the bell. You snorted. Your personalised care of subscription box gets sent right up your ass to the door, That's your door, yeah. It's weird. I feel less dehydrated when I'm guzzling alcohol. What's with that? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I'm going. I'm like, I'm going to drink this whole glass of water. Yeah, and I've never seen you drink a whole glass of water. I can't believe how clear it is. <laughs> it's got no bubbles at all. I know. Just chuck it at the back if you leave this yeah. bit where we realise yeah. that it's really not what we're allowed it, to say. We've got a new segment called True Crime Poontang. <laughs> and I'll put it in that. <laughs> True Crime Poontang. Poontang. 
Maybe you should get some. How many times have you gone to bed and gone, ah, oh, it's too hard, I have to take off my shoes and my socks and pull my pants down? You just wake up, you know, you just go to sleep with your pants on. I've done that lots of times. Um, I've hardly ever, ever done that particularly. No? I don't find it that hard to just get clothes. Also, I find clothes really uncomfortable. I like wearing really T-shirt materially things at home. I only wear the people clothes around the people. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, anyway, I've got to get some stripper pants. Yeah, you do. Well, your birthday's coming up in May. Maybe some uh, stripper collets, collets. Yeah, stripper jorts. Surely Stri- that's a stripper thing. Jorts. <laughs> S- stripper jorts. Stripper crocheted onesies. Mm, oh, that'd be complicated. Hey, back to those stripper pants. Yeah. They're really not that complicated. <laughs> it's just Velcro. Oh, right. I but, thought there might be some tabs, but no, no Velcro. it's probably okay. just Velcro. And You don't know? It's I, probably just Velcro? I'm guessing it's just Velcro. Oh. I, and the do other, your research. The other thing I'm guessing is they're a real pain in the ass to put on because you have to do up all the Velcro. Oh. Well, maybe there's a right way. Maybe there's like a, you know, a zipper as well. And so you do up the Velcro when they're not on you and then you put them on normally. I don't know. Why are we talking about this? I we don't should know. just it's Google pretty it. Good. We could just find out well, the answer, though. I want to start though. my Stripper Pants podcast. Oh, yeah, Stripper Pants with Barney Black. That's right. <laughs> How do they work? <laughs> stripper Pants and Poontang. Uh, they ev- could be our new uh, nicknames. Everything you want to know about Stripper Pants, but we're too afraid to ask. <laughs> Is it Velcro? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the end. Damn. Number one on iTunes. Uh. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.